Uh, how many of you read through Philippians this last week? Okay, that's, whoo, that's some improvement. All right, now, I am curious. Did you, you who have done it this last week or have done it, period, uh, did you find the task to be a burden or a blessing? Let me hear. A blessing. Are you just saying that? It's a blessing, yeah? Yeah, it is. I mean, God's word anytime, it's a blessing. But this book in particular, wow, Christ, the gospel. It doesn't get any better than that. So I just want to encourage you who are maybe not participating in that way to participate, to make it part of your routine, to read the letter of Philippians, four chapters, about 15 minutes maybe, duration, to read it through, or uh, maybe have someone read it to you, or whatever, however you can get at it uh, this coming week and every week, and just make it part of your, your rhythm, if you would. Um, Thomas will be preaching from, from John, the Gospel of John, next week, so uh, why don't you read the Gospel of John? Read, yeah, the whole Gospel, yeah. That might take you a little longer than 15 minutes. Okay. I like it, I like it. Keep it simple, right? Make it doable. Just read the first three chapters of John to prepare for the sermon for next week. But keep reading Philippians, all right? I would encourage you to that. All right. So, uh, this is part two. This is part two of, uh, of, of chapter three, verse eight, B through 11. In an effort... Uh, to make sure everyone is really understanding what Paul is saying here in this section, uh, in this chapter, I decided last time, if you were here, you know this, but I'm gonna repeat it. I decided last time to slow things down, way down. And, uh, and I did a lengthy review last time of what I had previously covered in the two different sermons that I preached for verses one through the first half of verse eight of chapter three. And then following that review last week, we looked at the second half of verse eight, or 8b, as, we, as I'm referring to it. And I taught on that. So we didn't get very far last time in our text. Not at all, because this, this unit that I'm preaching is 8b through 11, and we just did 8b, right? But guess what? We won't get far today either. Not at all, no. We will continue to move slow and, um, and only add verse nine <laughs> to the things we have covered. And so we will say verse 10 and 11 for what will become part three of gaining Christ. You with me? Now you know what to expect? All right. If you have not already, please open your Bibles to Philippians chapter three, Philippians chapter three, which if you're using one of the blue Bibles that we provide underneath the seats around you for you to you know, follow along, it would be on page 981 in the blue Bible. By the way, anybody out there using, uh, using a blue Bible? Anybody, anybody? All right, what is the heading or summary statement you see there for chapter three, for chapter three, which covers one through 11? What's the heading there? What is it? Yes, good, right, they said, I'll say it out, righteousness through faith in Christ. So heading statements, summary statements, it's an attempt to try to, without covering every detail, summarize that unit there. And uh, everyone does it a little bit differently, depending on the translation, but I think that's a good one. That's a good one to summarize uh, the main thrust, if you will, of this 
unit of one through 11. The NET uh, gives the heading true and false righteousness. Hmm. That's a good one too. That's a good one, Thomas. Uh, For context, what I want to do now is start reading from the beginning of chapter three. I'm going to also make some comments along the way, okay? Are you good? No, you're not. Are you good? Well, yeah, you're ready. That's what I mean, and you knew that. So, yes, you're ready. There are none good, no, not one. But you're ready, right? Verse one, chapter three. Here we go. I'll move slow. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Okay, pause. These stinging descriptions, this is a review, all refer to the same group of people. Who? Good, the Judaizers. Verse three. For we Christians, Paul including himself, we are the circumcision true circumcision, who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, Paul says, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, well, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, what law? That is the Mosaic law, or the law that God gave to his chosen nation, Israel, through his servant, Moses. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. I'm like like the best law keeper there is. As to zeal, a persecutor of the church. As to righteousness under the law, well, blameless. So Paul was, by always measurable, a most superior and religious Jew. And before his conversion on the road to Damascus, he trusted that being so made him fit and acceptable to God. That's what he used to think. Seven. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. Everything, everything. That is everything or anything outside of Christ that one might think to trust in or put one's confidence in for their salvation. Everything outside of Christ. Picking it back up. For his sake, Christ's sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. All things, all those things about which he had spoken, those earthly things he once took pride in and boasted in and trusted would make him fit and acceptable to God. Rubbish, he counts them now as rubbish. Rubbish, worthless, of no value, all human merit, 
human effort, human works, human achievements or accomplishments, when offered up to God for our acceptance with him, are really as worthless as rubbish or garbage, or it could even be translated, as I told you last time, dung or fecal matter. You ready? Picking back up. Back up a little bit so we get the flow. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ, verse 9, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That's the reading. So again, let me simply say this as a summary of verses 1 through 8a, very short. We have Paul's warning, right? Look out for the Judaizers or anyone that might be like them, you know, if we're applying it to us. Anyone that might kind of teach the same type of things. Look out for these people. They teach a distorted gospel, and there's plenty of people like that. They may not go by the label of Judaizers, but they're teaching a distorted gospel, a Jesus plus gospel, right? A Jesus plus it's not, Jesus is not enough. You need Jesus and then you need these other things and they're things that you need to do or achieve or accomplish or be in order to be made fit and acceptable to God, in order to be saved, in order to enter into his kingdom in the end. It's a Jesus plus gospel. It's a distorted gospel. The real gospel is Jesus plus nothing. It's Jesus alone. And then we see what one commentator calls in this reviewing, Paul's reevaluation of values. I like that. Paul's reevaluation of values. These things I once valued, I once counted as gain, as pluses on, on my column, if you will, on my ledger concerning being acceptable to God. I now see they do nothing. They do nothing to make this sinner right with God. They do not benefit me in that way. It is Christ and Christ alone. And so he has a, a reevaluation of values. So as one pastor put it, all must come to the same place Paul did, all where you throw overboard as worthless all. Trust in human merit. Throw it overboard. It's of no value when it comes to being right with God. And instead, cling to the Lord Jesus Christ as your only basis for acceptance with God. Then in verse 8b, Paul says he counts, right? This is a review still. That that word counts, it's in the present tense. He's, he's continuing to do this. He counted. When he, when he was enlightened, when his eyes were opened, there on the road to Damascus, in his encounter with Christ, he, he came to count all those other things that he once counted as gain as loss, and he now continues to count them 
to regard them as rubbish, them and anything like them that would look to compete with the glory that Christ is, with the value that he is, that would diminish Christ in his heart, in his mind, in his thinking, in his theology, and that would exalt him. He counts him, a human being, a sinful human being, he counts those things as rubbish, and he continues to do it. Any temptation otherwise, he makes the decision to lay it aside, to kick it out. It's worthless. He is worthy. All that's worthless. Yeah. So, I gotta stay on track. So he continues to regard, someone's gotta keep me on track. If you see me move off from the pulpit, it means I've left my notes. That's dangerous. Okay? As far as time goes. So he continues to regard as rubbish the things that the Judaizers still erroneously insist are gain. In the sense that they make one fit and acceptable to God. And he does that, he says, in order that I may gain Christ. In order that I might gain Christ. Remember this, I said to you, one scholar said, understand what he's doing. I I have counted and I continue to count all that stuff as worthless of no value in order that purpose clause, I may gain Christ. So he says it was impossible to hold on to the former values and still gain Christ. You gotta let go of that before you can grab hold of this. You get me? You gotta let go of that. Otherwise you're really not holding on to this. You turn from that, you turn to him. You turn to trusting in yourself on any level, in your good deeds, in your merit, in your accomplishments, in your niceness, in your obedience. You turn, you throw that out as far as having any value to make you right with the perfect one. You're guilty, you're defiled, you're condemned before God, even with all that stuff, apart from Christ You want him, you let go of that, and then you can hold on to him. And that's how it goes. Now, concerning the meaning of Paul's expression about gaining Christ, and I mentioned this last time, okay? The grammatical construction there, uh, without getting technical and stuff, we're talking about like the tense and the mood of, of the word gain and even the purpose clause. When we consider those things, It suggests that the apostle is looking forward to the day of Christ when he talks about gaining Christ. I I cast that all off. I count it as rubbish. I continue to do that, that I may, looking forward, gain Christ. Okay? That's what it suggests, the language, the grammar. One author says, it could be said that Paul has already gained Christ on the Damascus Road. So in one sense, that is true. He has Christ. It's not like, I hope to get him someday. His ambition, though, is to gain Christ perfectly um, or completely or wholly or fully. A goal, the writer says, that will be fully realized only at the end. I have him, but I'm looking to have, to have him perfectly, wholly, completely, fully. And that, I know, will happen in the end. On one level, one might say, I know Christ, but we will know him fully, completely, wholly, perfectly in that day. 
in the end. Okay, you with me? So, one could say this, Paul's eyes are fixed on the ultimate prize. And that prize is Christ Jesus. And Paul looks forward to gaining that prize in full at the end, okay? Further, according to one Bible scholar, Paul's expression that I may gain Christ, that I may gain Christ, it can be understood, we can see it as in in some ways being parallel or similar to and also overlapping with in, in meanings and understandings with the expressions that follow it specifically the one that follows it immediately in verse nine, and be found in him, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, and the one that shows up in verse 10, that I may know him, okay? There's some overlapping, there's some, there's some parallels between these expressions. The same Bible scholar that helped uh, explain that, you know, I saw that in, he says, being found in Christ then, we can understand it, being found in Christ, which is the next expression, explains to us what it signifies to gain him. What it means to gain him, at least in part. Okay, so when we're trying to understand what is, what is all Paul, what is Paul going on in his mind, we know, we believe he's looking future, towards the end, this gaining of Christ, and, and what does is, what is all of that entail? Well, it entails being found in him. Okay, you with me? But wait, Paul, who was a Christian, wasn't he already found in him? Don't we talk about being in Christ right now? Yeah, we do. But that expression, being found in him, is like his expression concerning his desire to gain Christ. It's forward-looking, and it's looking toward the, the fullness of that reality. As one author says, commentator says, as a believer, he is already in Christ, having been united with his Lord in his death and resurrection, just as all of we all just that could also be said of all of us who are trusting in Christ, believing in Christ, who have been born again, who have been saved and redeemed, right? But the grammatical construction, again, because it's similar to the other phrase, suggests Paul is looking forward to the day of Christ. The apostle's great ambition is to be found in him or found in him perfectly or wholly on that occasion when every knee shall bow to Jesus Christ as Lord, which is a reference to something else that Paul will say here in a little bit in the letter when we finally get to it. Now, beloved, this is it. This is where I wanted to land right here and let you sit with this without moving on to 10 and 11. It is this. It's of the utmost importance. Paul adds to the expression, and be found in him, which helps us understand what it is that he would gain Christ, right? Right? He adds this description of the manner in which Paul will be found in Christ perfectly on the final day or at the end 
And you don't want to miss it. You don't want to miss it. Because it really is bringing everything together that Paul set out to address when he began to warn again the church about Judaizers. Let's read it. Verse 9. And be found in him. How, Paul? In what manner will you be found in him? Not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law. Now take a moment to recall what Paul said of himself in verse 8, right? We just looked at it. He said, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. That is to say, in the matter of external conformity or outward obedience to the law, no man could have charged Paul with failure to keep it. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on, what is it? Faith. So I have a couple of, um, of um, quotes. One's really long. And what I did was, because it's such an important subject, uh, they're from three different sources, three different good Bible scholars, commentators. I, I use roughly seven, sometimes five, five to seven in uh, working through any passage that I trust and rely on. And, uh, but I pulled three because they all kind of say something. They're all getting at the same idea in, dis- in explaining to you uh, what, what's going on here and what Paul's communicating And uh, I hope it will be helpful. I hope it will be helpful to you. Let me give you, let me give you the first one. As one who will be found perfectly in Christ at the end, he does not have a righteousness of his own, gained by obeying the law and intended to establish a claim on God. This would be nothing other than, what's the word? What is it? You remember NET's true and false righteousness, I said, the heading? Place self-righteousness under the category of false. Instead, the righteousness Paul now has and will have when he is found in Christ perfectly is of a different order. It is a status of being right with God which comes as a gift. You can write down Romans 3, 21 through 25, look that up later. It comes as a gift. Gifts are just, they're given, beloved. They're received, they're given. They're not earned. If they're earned, it's really not a gift. It's a wage, This gift is appropriated or seized or taken one to oneself for my benefit on the basis of faith. On the basis of faith, period. Trust in a person, and that person being Jesus Christ. Trust in him and what he has done, all right? That 
commentator, it won't pop up, but he adds, Paul's own moral achievement gained by obeying the law and intended to establish a claim on God, particularly in view of the final judgment, was nothing other than self-righteousness. And Paul, writing now as a Christian, as a Christian, no longer as a Pharisee, but as a Christian, gladly jettisons it in favor of a different kind of righteousness. He boots his self-righteousness to the curb in exchange for the righteousness he now has because of Christ and in Christ. And it's not his own. It's Christ's righteousness. So self-righteousness, what is that? Well, it's the quality or state of being self-righteous. <laughs> and uh, so that's it. But Webster defines the word self-righteous, just, just to make sure we're all on the same page, uh, as convinced, this is the definition of self-righteous, convinced of one's own righteousness, especially in contrast with the actions and beliefs of others. Self-righteous. I mean, look, goodness, you know, Paul's like, if we want to go the self-righteous route, I got you all beat. <laughs> if, I mean, I got you all beat. There's no one more uh, righteous than me if that's the route we're going to go in that, in that regard. And yet, I kicked it to the curb. I had a reevaluation of my values in light of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Uh, you remember the parable, maybe, and, and you write this down. We're not going to look at it, but in Luke 18, it's so good, so solid. Luke 18 and verses 9 through 14. Do you remember that? Anybody know what that parable is? Luke 18, 9 through 14. Anybody remember that? Just by chance. What is it? I'm not picking anybody. What is it? All right, I don't want to embarrass anybody. I don't want to do that. Someone looked it up. I knew if I gave them enough time, they would look it up. I'm sure you had it right, baby. I'm sure you had it right. I couldn't read your lips from here, but I'm sure you had it right. Uh, yeah, the Pharisee and the tax collector, right? A parable Jesus told, it says, quote, to some Pharisees, the religious elite of Jesus' day, the keepers of the law, he told to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. You know what that is? That's the definition I just gave you of self-righteous. <laughs> and remember, the parable goes that a Pharisee and a tax collector, which tax collectors were considered like pretty low on the totem pole of, of valuable people or any chance of them getting into, getting into heaven or being right with God. They were kind of like scum. For different reasons, some different reasons than what we would think about tax collectors today, but it was low. They were considered traitors and so on and so forth. But a Pharisee and a tax collector went to the temple to pray. The Pharisee, do you remember what the Pharisee said? I thank God that I'm not like other men. And then he goes on to list his achievements and his, his doings and his law keeping and even going above and beyond and all that he does and keeping of the law. And then he looks over at the tax collector. He goes, and I, th I think I'm not like other men or like that tax collector. Oh my goodness. And the tax collector in the parable simply says, there in the temple, before God, in prayer, 
God be merciful to me, a sinner? Do you remember what Jesus said about who was justified? It wasn't the Pharisee. It was the tax collector. All right, here's another one. You ready? Here we go. For Paul, a righteousness attained by the law was only, here we go again, a relative self-righteousness. The best that could be hoped for was the blamelessness of which he spoke in chapter 3, verse 6b, but which he nonetheless had found inadequate for gaining salvation. Thus, the law provides one approach to righteousness, but it is a flawed approach. The problem is not the law. Paul taught that the law is good, and it is good and holy. The problem is sin, which indwells each person. Clearly, no one has the kind of righteousness that will secure a verdict of innocent when God examines the life. The alternative, and the only one that God would accept, would be God's righteousness. Beloved, that righteousness, God's righteousness, as the true gospel of Jesus plus nothing teaches, that is the righteousness that is credited to the sinner only through saving faith in the Savior. That is Christ Jesus the Lord, who being the only truly righteous man who ever lived, the only one, graciously imputes or credits to the believing, trusting sinner his, his very own perfect righteousness, which then makes the unacceptable sinner entirely fit and acceptable to God, which is what really matters in the end. Christ Jesus is the sinner's total salvation. Christ Jesus is the sinner's complete acceptance before God. Christ Jesus is the sinner's acceptable righteousness before God. Period. End of story. Everything else one might put up in place of that is trash. It's of no value. It's of no gain. All right, here we go. Here's the long one, and then we're going to conclude, and we're going to do the business meeting. You ready? It's long. Just try to follow along. We'll pick back up next time, okay? He just comes at it a little bit differently, and I, I found it to be helpful. Again, I know we're, you're trying to absorb all this right away, and hopefully it'll be helpful to you as we work through these things. Got to get them right. So, this is not, these are serious matters. This is the gospel. We have to have this right. For the glory of God, for the salvation of his people, for our own good. There is a righteousness which does not satisfy Paul refers to, he says, no, a righteousness of my own. Not a righteousness of my own. That's, that's, that's not what I will stand with before God. That's not how I'll be found in Christ. There is a righteousness which does not satisfy. There is a righteousness which meets the requirements. That is the righteousness from God. And there is a way by which this desired righteousness can be obtained. That which is through faith in Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith. Then he goes on to say this. Righteousness means being in the right with God. That's one way to 
That's one way to describe it. Paul believes that in Christ, by faith, it is possible to stand under divine scrutiny, God's scrutiny, which is perfect and complete and sees all, and to secure the verdict that he's right with God. In other words, in Christ, standing before God, God will say, Paul is in the right. Paul is all that I require him to be. Paul is righteous. Because he's in Christ. And clothed in Christ's righteousness. Here we go. Paul has no wish for a righteousness of my own based on law. And yet, beloved, and yet, in one way or another, the religions of the world, that is what they're attempting to do. Whether it be the Mosaic law or their own law. This is a do-it-yourself righteousness. This is one time you do not want to do it yourself, for sure. It has arisen through self-effort or personal good works. These good works have been patterned on a legal code, and hence it is a righteousness based on law. Paul had once been able to boast of such a righteousness when it was his claim that he was, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Verse 6, his own intense, demanding, and sacrificial labors, and certainly there were, they, there were these things, in order to even make that statement, had produced conformity to a legal code of behavior. Of what worth was this conformist righteousness? Just that, and nothing more. It was a certificate of good behavior. In the end, it was righteousness based on law, literally out from the law. Such a righteousness as proceeds from conforming to a standard. Now, such a righteousness does not give security. Listen, it does not make us confident that God will judge us favorably. And that for two reasons. First, even if we ever did attain such an unbroken record, we have still to maintain it until the judgment day. And one slip is enough to make the law pronounce an adverse verdict and make our righteousness evaporate into nothing. But more important, and I agree, secondly, such a righteousness is self-conferred. We have weighed our own merits, examined our own right to the verdict. We have been both defendant and judge. We could never be certain that our verdict would command God's respect or that our prejudiced and partial self-knowledge was as penetrating as his holy scrutiny. As if I can look into the recesses of my heart and see everything that's there and I declare, I am righteous before God. Are you kidding in particular, we might award ourselves a high pass mark by excusing or overlooking our inner defections from the path of obedience. Yeah, I look good on the outside. Oh, I'll just ignore what's going on on the inside. And you can't see that. But God does. Just as Paul found himself beaten by the law when he faced its condemnation of covetousness. He's like, as soon as the law comes into play, I realize I've got all kinds of covetousness going on inside of my heart, and that's sin. A certificate of good behavior which we have awarded to ourselves is not enough to give us confidence as we face the judgment of God. 
There is, however, the possibility of a certificate of righteousness which God awards. And in this case, we can indeed be confident for if God pronounces us right with him, then we are indeed secure forever. This is what Christ means to Paul. And now you know what he's talking about when he says, or speaks of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Christ Jesus is Paul's certificate of righteousness. Is he yours? Is he yours? Are you trusting in yourself, in your own efforts, in your own merit, in your own goodness, in your own external conformity to law? Or have you jettisoned all that self-righteousness and by faith grabbed hold of the righteousness of Christ Jesus, trusting that he alone, through his death, through his perfect life, death, resurrection, glorification, is the one and the only one that could make a sinner fit and acceptable to God? Have you cried out to him to save you? Have you recognized your need that apart from him you'd be damned? There'd be no hope? I hope so. I hope so. We'll pick it back up next time. That concludes our service.